Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I'll read there in just a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if you have interest in baptism or would like to know more about baptism, use the communication card in the bottom of your program, fill it out, make sure I have your phone number, uh, and I will contact you this week. Glad to be able to do it here in the service where all of you can watch. Uh, I want to take you back in time. Some of you are old enough to remember what I'm about to describe. I can vividly remember being a 10-year-old boy growing up in Florida, and if somebody came to our house Sunday after church unexpectedly, like, you know, we're home from church and we're thinking about what we're going to do that Sunday, and then all of a sudden, another family from church drove down the driveway, I remember being excited about that. I mean, I was going to get to show someone, maybe my friend, I was going to get to show them my room. I was going to get to show them that cool poster on the back of my bedroom door, you know. I was going to get to take them outside, show them my treehouse, show them my motorcycle, maybe my trampoline. Uh, it was spontaneous. It was out of the ordinary. When you're at home and you think your day is going to look one way, and all of a sudden somebody new shows up, I remember being excited about that. How do you feel today when that happens? Now you're at home and you got your plan, and all of a sudden you see a car coming in the driveway. Quick, turn out the lights. Turn down the TV. Get behind the easy chair. It's good. They're gone. What's changed? What's happened? I want to talk to you today. I understand that culture has changed. I understand that we've changed with it. But when it comes to biblical community, knowing one another more than superficially, on a deep, personal level, it's not such a good thing that we've changed. How many of you remember that years ago, there was typically only one phone in the house, maybe two, and the phone hung in the kitchen, and there was no way to turn off the ringer. You had two settings, loud and extra loud. And because it was in the kitchen, the center of your house, you went out and you bought one of those like 30-foot spiral cords, so you could be anywhere in the house, you know. Mom's like four rooms away, 50 feet down the hall, and she's doing laundry while she's talking on the phone. I can remember when Amy and I were first married, we bought a phone that had a built-in answering machine and you could turn off the ringer. Now, this was new country for us, brand new territory. What freedom I can turn off the ringer. That means when I'm engrossed in my favorite telephone or television show, none of you people can bother me. See? And when your name is Reverend Mike Holt and you're in the local phone book, you get calls all hours of the day, all hours of the night. Well, that was going to end now that we had a phone you could turn off the ringer. The only problem was I learned very quickly and it hung in the kitchen center of our house, just feet from the den where I watch football or watch television. The ringer might not ring, but when the answering machine picked up, here's what you heard. Boop. Uh, yeah, Pastor Mike, uh, so-and-so, could you give me a call? It was just as distracting, it was just as frustrating. After several weeks of that, I decided, let's take this thing out of the kitchen, because when I'm watching television, and I've turned off the ringer, I want to enjoy my privacy, and we put it in the bedroom. That was a huge mistake. (laughs) You know, it's getting hot and heavy in there, and you're feeling good about yourself. And all of a sudden, boop, ah, uh, yeah, Pastor Mike, I'd like you to meet with me. We need to have prayer together. You don't want to hear that when you're making your move. So we took it out of the bedroom and I took it upstairs and put it in my home office, okay? 
But that didn't work either because the home office is kind of on a balcony in our house and it just kind of amplified the voice as it kind of cascaded down into the den. I'm sorry to admit this to you, but there was actually a month or so before the guilt overtook me where we took the phone, put it back in the kitchen, but instead of hanging it on the wall, we took the plug-in, ran it under the door into the pantry and put it back in the corner so we couldn't hear it. I'm ashamed to admit that to you. I went from a 10-year-old little boy who is excited to interact with people to a 50-year-old minister who doesn't want to be bothered. There's something wrong with that. Now, I'm just being honest. But you're the same way, aren't you? You don't want to be bothered this afternoon when you're home. You put your feet up. You want to watch the ball game. Your wife fixed a big meal and now your belly's full. You want to lay down on the couch. You don't want to be bothered, do you? No. Well, that's not such a good thing. You know, it's very hard nowadays to get someone to even answer the phone when I call them. Have you noticed this? Many years ago, when cell phones were first becoming popular, everybody wanted to be talking on their cell phone. We would make up reasons to call people because now we could do it while we were standing on the street corner and everybody who saw us would think, wow, they're important, right? Now no one answers their phone. I call you people and I know what's happening. You got the ringer off. It's in your pocket. You don't leave a message because nobody checks messages anymore. A few seconds later, it buzzes or vibrates in your pocket. You pull it out. Oh, Pastor Mike, I'll call him back. And you call me back at your convenience. Here's the only problem. I've already moved on to my second call. Now I'm waiting for someone else to pick up their end of the line and they don't answer either. So when you call me back, that beeping you hear constantly, that's the second person I called returning my call. It's incredibly frustrating because we don't want to be bothered. We'd rather shoot one another a text. But even that is becoming passe like email. Young people don't text as much as they used to. When texting first became popular, I swore. I said, I will never send a message over a phone by pushing little bitty buttons. My hands are big. My fingers are big. That just didn't sound right to me. But then I found the automatic voice recorder. And I mastered that. By the way, if you use it, proofread your texts. I've sent some embarrassing texts to people. Now we don't even want to be bothered with text messaging. If I had to communicate via Snapchat, if my life depended on it, I wouldn't know how to do it. I tell my staff, don't email me from your office. Don't text me from your office. Get out of your chair, walk down the hall, knock on my door, and I will make time for you. Because in my mind, all this technology, getting us closer than we've ever been before, keeping us in touch more so than ever before, and yet I don't think we've ever been farther apart. It's not necessarily a good thing. Let me tell you something. The first century church, the church that started this revolution... The church that was so powerfully dominant in the first century world that what they began remains today and we're a part of it right now. We're close. They enjoyed what we would call biblical community. They didn't leave messages with one another. They didn't get back to each other at their convenience. They actually loved one another. They actually had time for one another. 
There were five important things to the first century church, and those same five things are important to us today. They're a part of our literature. They're all over our website. The reason we exist as a church are for these five things. They come from Acts chapter 2. I've shared them with you before. Here they are. I use the uh, an acronym midwife to remember this. M, wife. M is for ministry. They helped one another. They reached out. W stands for worship. They were in all the scripture says what God was doing among them. I stands for the instruction of the the apostles and they responded to it according to Acts chapter 2. F stands for fellowship or biblical community because they were engaged with one another in more than just a superficial way. And E stands for evangelism. Now listen very carefully. We today in our modern mega churches may practice the same five missions of the first century church, but we are very, very different from them in one regard. And here it is to them. Church was community and the gathering was worship to us. The gathering is church and we've drifted away from real community. Okay, think about that. Let that sink in for a minute. You see, no one in the first century church ever said, hurry up, we're going to be late for church. Because they didn't think of church that way. They didn't see church that way. To them, church was community. The bond they had with other followers of Jesus Christ. The vulnerability, transparency, honesty they could share one with another simply because they worshipped the same Jesus. It's not that way today, is it? Today, church happens for one hour on Sunday morning. We leave our homes and we go to church. Many of us leave this building and we don't give another instant of thought toward my personal faith walk with Jesus Christ or anyone else's. That's because we don't know community. You see, our fellowship in the modern church is very often superficial. Do you realize that in the modern church we have to program fellowship? We have to program fellowship because we're hoping it will springboard you into real biblical community. We've got a term. We use it often. Small groups. Small groups would not exist in the modern church if there wasn't such an incredible need for biblical community. Do you know why small groups exist? Small groups can make larger churches feel smaller, more intimate, because actual community can take place on a personal level. That's why small groups exist. If we had community like the first century church engaged in community, there would be no need for small groups. We in the South especially are guilty for substituting hospitality for community. Because nobody can put on the dog like we in South Georgia... We assume that because we're friendly, because we have dinner on the grounds a few times a year, because we're always willing, at least so we say, for that person to come see us, that we've got biblical community. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Along with Acts chapter 2 and the early model of the early church, first century church, there are numerous other New Testament references as to the importance of community. One of them is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. The Apostle Paul said this, He said, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Do you know what Paul was doing? Paul was building community, not the surface life, not stand and shake hands with your neighbor, 
but the depth of life. What is the golden rule according to Jesus? Jesus was asked, there are more than 600 commandments in the Old Testament law. Could you tell us which one is most important? It's a passage on community. He said in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's community with God. Engage God. Interact with your Creator on more than a superficial level by putting an offering in a plate or by standing to sing a few songs in a worship service that lasts for 60 minutes on a Sunday morning. Take it to the level of community. Love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Then He said the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. If the great commandment doesn't speak to community, I don't know what it speaks to. Here's my main point. I put this in the program today, and I want you to think about this. While becoming less important to our culture, community has to remain a key element in our churches. While becoming less important, culturally speaking, we prefer isolation. We prefer pursuing our own goals and interests. We pursue taking it at our own pace and doing what we think is most important with our time. It's a countercultural message for sure. But while becoming less important in culture, community needs to remain a key element in the local church. Well, you say, I thought this was a pretty friendly church. And it is. There are some friendly people that attend here. This is a good church to be a part of. If I were not a pastor, I would attend a church like this one. There are many things I love about grace, but i got to be honest with you. It is obvious that not just us, the local church in our community lacks true biblical community. You say, how so? First thing comes to my mind is an absence of authenticity. Absence of authenticity. When you look at the modern church and you see a bunch of inauthentic people who put on friendliness by wearing the same shirt and standing out front, greeting people as they come in without ever bothering to learn someone's name, wearing a badge on their, on their shirt, Uh, smiling at people who engage a certain class or come be a part of a certain meeting. See, we're putting on superficial fellowship and friendliness, but deep down we're not authentic because we wear masks. Just like our parents who came before us, only they wore a mask for a different reason. How many of us have criticized the previous generation, 50s, 60s, 70s? We called them hypocrites. They wore masks in the church. They wanted people to think they were someone they weren't. We wear masks just for a different reason. We wear masks because we don't want to reveal who we really are. Two different things, but the same problem with both. A lack of biblical community. A lack of authenticity. See, nobody can match the hospitality of the South. I learned that the moment I moved to South Georgia. But that doesn't mean that we're authentic, that we're real. See, community demands authenticity. Take something else that's obvious to me. We lack community in our bigger churches in this community, because of all the broken relationships in the church. See? One of the greatest things one man told me years ago about Grace going to two services is that I don't have to attend church any longer with that so-and-so. He goes at 9.30, I'll come at 11. That ought not be in a church. See? If you can't come in and sit next to someone because there's something so tight, so big, so deep, so difficult between the two of you. We've got a community problem as evidenced by our broken relationships. You see, love is what makes the church unified. And unity is not uniformity. Don't misunderstand. You see, we don't all have to look alike. We don't all have to act alike. 
We don't all have to see the world the same way. We don't all have to speak alike, talk alike, react alike. We don't have to. We don't even have to like one another according to this book. We've got to love one another. And when I love you, that means I accept you for who you are. I accept you for where you are. I'm willing, here's a biggie, to forgive whatever offenses may be between the two of us. You see, that's genuine community. And it's lacking today because there are people who literally will not come to this service because some of you are in it. They come 930. And that's a shame. Here's another reason. A spirit of exclusion. Exclusion. We don't mean to put people out, but we do. Paul said in Romans 15, Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. You understand that love is an action verb. It's not passive. Love, if it's authentic, in the spirit of community, might actually consider doing something on some on Sunday morning to make someone else feel more a part of the group. Look, if I weren't the pastor, let me tell you what Amy and I would do. We'd sit in a different seat every Sunday. We wouldn't get used to the same families that sit in front of us and the same families that sit behind us. And John says, stand, shake hands with your neighbor. I already know these people because I sit with them every Sunday. I'd sit next to someone new. I'd learn their name. I'd come back the following Sunday. I'd seek them out and I'd call them by name. Look, this church is 20 years old. People have been coming and going from this church for 20 years. Over its 20 year history, there are primarily two kinds of people who have left this church. Okay, Some are very religious. They're very sound and stable in their faith. They get here and they like something about it early on. But as they're here for a while, they start to pick apart things they don't like about it. And eventually they leave. I lose no sleep over those kinds of people. But let me tell you about the people who leave that keep me awake at night. They're people that we've been chasing for five years. Ten years, maybe. And we finally get them to walk into the door of this church. And they haven't been to church since their high school days. But they're hungry. And they're searching. And they're looking. The studies show we have six weeks to hold on to those people and make some sort of connection. Otherwise, they're going to drift away. And when they drift away because they couldn't engage us, they couldn't connect with us, it keeps me awake at night. There are people who attend this church that I personally chased for 10 years to get to come to church. And now when they do, I want them to connect. I want them to sense real, authentic, biblical community. It matters. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, if I put myself out there like that, there are going to be some people that will take advantage. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. How can I make myself vulnerable in a small group? How can I be transparent, honest with someone without certain people taking advantage of that? That's going to happen. Listen to C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. He writes, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully around with little hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all other entanglements. Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Oh, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You see, the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love 
is hell. Look, typically in our churches today, we're friendly superficially to people we don't know. We're really authentic in our friendship to the people who are just like us. And the gap between those two is this spirit of exclusion that I'm describing. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon, 3,000 years ago, makes a very simple yet profound principle. Everybody's going to understand what we're about to read. The question is, will you let it begin to impact your life and work its way through your relationships? Read with me in verse 7. Solomon writes, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Remember, that's the theme of this whole book. This is the king's personal diary. And apart from God, Solomon says life is nothing but a repetitious, meaningless, ongoing cycle of weariness. He goes on. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Worked all the time. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So here's a guy that's living a very self-absorbed life. He's acquiring, he's possessing, he's building, he's growing his nest egg. And yet he is not content with that wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of real enjoyment? Now, let's be honest. He wasn't depriving himself of anything. He was doing exactly what he wanted to do with his time, with his resources, with his money. And yet there was no enjoyment in that. Keep reading. This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Verse nine. Two are better than one. There it is. Everybody understands that math, right? Two is greater than. Than one. Two are better than one. Everybody understands the words that are coming out of my mouth. Everybody understands that, right? Let it impact you. Let it become personal to you. Here's why. They have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Verse 11. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It is indeed a countercultural message. Two really are better than one. And he identifies at least three reasons why. Number one comes from verse 10, and that's encouragement. Encouragement. Two are better than one because if I fall, there's someone there to help me up. But now look, Solomon is going deeper than simply stumbling on the sidewalk and, oh, thank God you were there to help me stand back up. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about encouragement. It is the, 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 the most necessary, uh, important thing we could ever give one another in today's climate and in today's culture. Some have called it friend Therapy In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit of God is called the great encourager. Why? Because he comes alongside us to help us in our time of need. Two are better than one because when there are two, they can encourage one another. Commentator William Barclay, one of my favorite authors and theologians, he writes, One of the highest of human duties is the duty of encouragement. It is so easy to laugh at men's ideals. It is so easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It is easy to discourage others. And we live in a very discouraging world and culture. The world is full of discouragers, he says. But we have a duty to encourage one another. Many a time a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed are those who speak. Such words. Encouragement. You can be an encourager 
That's part of real community. Here's the second. It comes from verse 11. Support. In verse 11, he says, if you lie down together, you'll stay warm. Again, he's not describing simple survival from the elements. He's talking about real support. Remember how it felt the first day on a new job? You didn't know what to expect. And there's the old guy that's been around for a while and he kind of kind of smiles and kind of nods or motions for you to sit with him next to next to him at lunch or something. Remember the first day at school, the first day on a college campus. Remember how uneasy you felt, how wonderful it is to have someone to go with you through those difficult times of adjustment in our lives. Remember sitting in the home of someone who had lost a loved one and you don't have to say anything. You don't have to pray some eloquent prayer. It's just the support you're offering by being there during the bad times in life. We need community and when we don't have it, we're lonely. You see, that's how we've adjusted in the modern church. We've hired professional staff to do it. Because we lack biblical community in today's modern church, we hire people that are supposed to be paid to go and sit and listen to someone's problems. I'm supposed to be paid to go and sit on someone's front porch and drink lemonade and listen to their story. I'm supposed to be paid to go to the hospital and visit someone who's sick or caring for an elderly parent. That means nothing compared to real community in the church. When the need goes out, the people respond. I can promise you that. And then the final thing is protection. That comes from verse 12. You know, one can be overpowered, but two can defend themselves. Real protection. You see, often we find ourselves in situations that make us very, very uncomfortable. We're not in danger of physical assault, per se, but vicious rumors or verbal abuse can be deflected and diffused when we have a companion in community. We can pray for one another, and that is a valuable ministry of God's New Testament church rooted in community. I'm going to leave you with three questions. And these questions will reveal to you just how important real biblical community is to you personally. Here's question number one. In the body of Christ, the local church, who really knows that I love them? Again, apart from your immediate family, in the body of Christ, who knows that I love them? Who loves me? Question number two. In the body of Christ, who do I really know? I mean, I really know these people. Flip it. Who really knows me? And number three, in the body of Christ, who do I serve? And who serves me? I'm asking you to open your heart to community at Grace Community Church. I'm asking you to buy in. It's more than simply signing up for a small group. It's more than thinking beyond your personal, private, comfortable life. It's biblical community. I want you to buy in. I want you to make it your business. Look. No one, no one should be alone while attending a church called Grace. So help us.